Happy Christmas Eve to those who celebrate the holidays, and happy just another day to those who don't. Welcome to the 67th heaping helping of Scoring at the Movies. We drop our chats about motion pictures with sports in them every other Thursday. I guess today's episode needs the word sports in quotation marks. A few of them this year have been like that. I'm the chess dad who has a working knowledge of the game and therefore didn't feel completely out of his element watching this movie, Ryan Ellis. And here's the grandmaster who likes to play really fast and doesn't feel the need to write his moves down on a pad of paper, Chris Gregorio. Thank you, Ryan. I'm but a pawn within your Queen's Gambit <laughs> in the context of this podcast. Nice reference off the bat with Queen's Gambit, by the way, because that's why we're doing this movie. It's been talked about so much lately. Bev suggested we do this movie. It just got put on Netflix, actually. So you referenced it right away. Good job. I got to get those cultural references in that will surely never age. I got to date this podcast to the moment in time in which we record it right off the bat. And I might play fast, Ryan, but I don't play well. And that's the key. That's why I don't have to write down any of my moves. I just bang, 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 lose. Understood. Thank you. And goodbye. <laughs> it would mean nothing to you to write them down anyway. I'm like Bobby Fischer in that chess match that he threw to the kid in that one tournament where he's like, how did you lose in seven moves? I found a way, sir. <laughs> Wait, did I say Bobby Fischer? Not Bobby Fischer. The lead in this movie. Josh. Yeah, Josh. When Josh threw that game to the sucker of a kid. That's my style of chess. It's go big and go home. Very quickly. <laughs> well, two things. First of all, I see you about to take a sip there. What are you drinking? That's not a beer, I don't think, is it? It looks like wine. It is not. I'm classing it up for this episode. I figure we're about two episodes away from doing something that's probably going to be really crass and stupid, because episode 69 and all. For this classy, chess-related, cerebral podcast, I've decided to go with a nice Chardonnay. A nice oh, white wow. wine. I'll be swirling this thoughtfully whenever you're speaking and I'm just pondering whatever cogent point you've just made. You'll be able to watch me just swirl it obnoxiously in front of my camera as I'm listening. <laughs> Is there a black fly in there? I hope not. Not yet. Give it time. It's not ironic. Okay, good, good. The second question is, do you know anything about chess going into this movie? And you did watch The Queen's Gambit as I did on Netflix. Because I know a little bit about chess. I know basically what's going on, and I know how the pieces work. I just don't know how to actually be very good at it. But what about you? From a recreational perspective, I'm competent enough. When I was growing up, one of the first pieces of technology that was any way computerized that I ever remember my parents owning was my father buying this chessboard, and it was probably the mid-80s at the time. And it must have had a computer chip built into it, because all of the pieces had little magnetized bottoms and things so the board would recognize with little red lights wherever you moved your pieces to and then it would play against you so there was a computer playing against you and it would indicate using little lights where to move the computer's pieces and back and forth so i spent a lot of hours playing against a computer using that thing growing up but it doesn't teach you any strategy and that's what's mind-blowing to me about watching things like The Queen's Gambit, and now even searching for Bobby Fischer, even though this movie doesn't really go into any of the strategy of Queen's Gambit stuff, you never learn any of the predetermined stratagems, right? You don't learn the openings. You don't learn closing strategy. You're just playing almost by brute force because you're just figuring out what moves work best. 
And I think there's something inherently cool about that because we like to puzzle things out, I think. But at the same time, you can only go so far. And that's about it. I played it for years in that way and then kind of lost interest and never picked it up again. But it is neat to see these kinds of movies delve into the true competitive nature and artistic nature of the game sometimes. Well, I said two weeks ago on Free Solo that that's a combination of science and art. Mm -hmm. He's got talent that most other people will never have to be able to climb rocks like that. But also it is a matter, as we said, of practice. And that's effectively about science. That's about working your thing. And that's what chess is to some degree too. We really do see it in the Queen's Gambit because she is practicing, if you will, in her head when she's a little girl and when she's an older girl as well. Well, she's still so young, but she's a little bit older by the end of that series. And she's visualizing on the ceiling when she's young, especially all the time. So she is practicing. And in her case, not even with pieces, which of course is one of the things in this movie too. The recall in the end game when Josh sees the empty board after Bruce had swiped all the pieces away, you can see without seeing the actual pieces. And I like that little touch where for a second, in his mind, there are no pieces on the board when he's playing Jonathan Poe. There's some symmetry there. One of my greatest disappointments in this particular movie, having watched Queen's Gambit fairly recently and the great job that they did making an entertaining miniseries about chess while still honoring the true details of the game. They actually showed you aspects of the games being played and the true moves being made accurately. And what this movie failed to do for me, quite frankly, was showcase the game that it was supposed to be about. Because you see lots of people playing it, but I, for one, never really got a sense of what the heck was going on in any individual game. Queen's Gambit was better for that, it's true. Shy of the one time, which was actually a fun moment, but the one time that the parents get locked up in the locker room and you got a kid... Funny, yeah. Shy of that kid running down and screaming, Queen takes pawn and Weak takes bishop. That was the only moment where I had any clue what was going on in any individual game, really. I guess shy of the end, too, because you've only got the four pieces on the board and you can see each one moving. But otherwise, it's just a flurry of people hammering on cloths because it's speed chess. I get that. But I would have liked a little bit more of a sense of the art of it and the knowledge of it. Josh is drawn by the speedy games in the very beginning in Washington Square Park, which is southern part of Manhattan. But chess is also the polite version of war. And the Washington Park guys play it like it is war with yes. that fast play. And I always remembered, and I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but I always remembered when Josh starts doing it too, but especially Vinny, Lawrence Fishburne's character, when they take a piece, especially if it's a big one like a queen, it's that one swift motion of you take the other guy's piece and you slam it down. And I'm sure the sound effects also make that even more emphatic. I would think if you tried to do that more often than not, you'd wipe that piece off the board and maybe even ruin the other pieces and probably be disqualified for doing that. But it's for the movie's sake, I guess. But it's also a funny way to be drawn into a game that isn't about aggression, really, even though I just said it's a version of war, but it's polite. It's a very civilized game. And most of the time, it is pretty slow. Yeah. Bobby Fischer, if you watch the documentaries, there's been more than one about him. He called this movie a Jewish conspiracy. <laughs> but when you watch those documentaries... <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> but when you watch those documentaries... He takes a long time between some moves, and I think Boris Spassky does too, in reality. And Queen's Gambit does that more than this movie does. And it doesn't seem like a fast movie, but I guess in this way, it is. And also the title of it, both on Netflix, which it wasn't when it first went up there about five, six days ago, but now it is the title on Netflix, and also in UK and Norway and some other places, is Innocent Moves, 
which to me sounds like a softcore porno. Yeah, I was thinking the same. Yeah, not at all fitting. I guess they're going for it like it's kids playing chess and thus it's innocent. But yeah, it sounds way dirtier as a movie title than this And it's movie also not deserves. accurate. Searching for Bobby Fisher is what they're doing. They mentioned him plenty. It's in the opening of the movie when you see the footage of him playing in the 70s and I think maybe the 60s when he got to be a grandmaster. And they talk about him at the very end. The movie is so much about a character that's never actually in the movie. So why change the title? And I yeah. told you it was on Netflix. Hey, I don't have to loan the movie to you after all. You can just watch it on your own time on Netflix. And then I noticed two days later, oh, now it's called Innocent Moves. So weird. So goofy. It's an interesting comparison when you think about this game. Chess can be an analogy and has often been an analogy for war throughout history. But it's also a game that evolves with society. And the way it's played evolves with society. And I think the way they bring that point across in this movie is by contrasting the attitudes of Ben Kingsley versus Lawrence Fishburne. Ben Kingsley is very much the classical style of chess. Let's revere the grandmasters of early 20th and 19th centuries. You've got to stay away from the Washington Park players because speed chess will ruin you because they play street chess, right? It's all aggression and intimidation and wild moves. It's almost like watching something like Hoosiers versus white man can't jump. Well, this is basketball as it was invented and was played collegiately for like decades versus basketball as it evolved in playgrounds and stuff like that into the 80s, 90s and beyond. It's the same game, but if you put one group of people against another group of people, it would look entirely differently. It's just the evolution of a thing. And it's kind of interesting to see that played out very clearly in this movie as it relates to chess anyway. Also, the black guy is the street guy. They're putting the thread through the button on that one. And then Bruce is Ben Kingsley. Mm -hmm. Sir Ben. You got to call him Sir Ben all the time, which I think is so dumb. But he has been knighted, so fine. But he's playing Bruce Pandolfini. And I was reading that the real guy is Irish. And I've seen this movie two, three, maybe four times. And I guess he's trying to do an Irish accent. And I don't think I ever picked up on that before. One of the questions I had for you when we did this day was, what accent was Ben Kingsley meant to be doing? Because at various I points, think that's it. there were maybe like four or five times when all of a sudden there'd be an Irish lilt to whatever he was saying. But not consistent. Only those four or five moments. And then throughout the rest of the movie, it's just Ben Kingsley talking in his quasi-American accent. Not even New Yorker accent. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is he supposed to be Irish? Is he supposed to be from New York? Is he from Ireland? And when I looked up, yeah, it's based on this guy, Bruce Pandolfini. I'm like, is he Irish, American, Italian? I was just lost with whatever Ben Kingsley was doing in this movie. So it would have been fun if it had been Joey Pants playing the new <laughs> character instead. So white guy. And then Courtney B. Vance was the sedate teacher. Reverse it. Yeah. Go against the grain and go against the cliche. Because the black guy being the street hustler may be true in many cases. And I guess the real Vinny was black. But that is a bit of a cliche. Yeah. And then the staid white older guy playing his teacher. Well, I got a nutshell for you, by the way, because we're talking about two of these characters. We haven't even talked about the main lead, which I guess really is Joe Mantegna. And I guess Max Pomerantz is the main character. Okay, anyway. But here's the nutshell for Searching for Bobby Fisher, Innocent Moves. Fat Tony, Morpheus, and Gandhi care way too much about a kid beating another kid. <laughs> way too invested in this. I was kind of hoping your nutshell would be very innocent moves or something along those lines. <laughs> Just really lean into the innocent moves. This was the first time I've ever actually seen this movie. Oh, it is. All right. I was very well aware of it in the 90s. At that point, I had stopped fiddling with chess, and I was like 13, 14 years old. I wasn't of the age group that's going to go watch this kind of slow-paced movie about a seven-year-old chess prodigy. I didn't know it was a true story. As these movies where you kind of air quotes based on a true story go, it's a fictionalized drama, but it is based on Josh's life. It's apparently quite accurate. 
until I saw the end of this movie, I didn't realize that that was the case. So there were moments over the course of this where I was raising my questioning eyebrow and going like, ah, oh, really? You've got Lawrence Fishburne, who I always love, and I loved in this role, incidentally. But Lawrence Fishburne as the streetwise chess player, isn't that a little on the nose? And then I look it up, I'm like, oh, okay, so this was an amalgam of three people, but they were three black men in Washington Park or whatever, New York. So, okay, fair enough. I guess I can't fault it too hard, even if it is a little bit of a cliche. And even Ben Kingsley's character, some moments in this movie, I rolled my eyes a little bit like, oh, come on, you're really playing into the trope a little bit as the crotchety teacher, aren't you? But apparently that was this guy. This guy's whole mm -hmm. attitude was very much conservative, traditional, don't mess with these newfangled speed chess ideas, kid, because it'll get your head all screwed up. I had a lot of thoughts about this movie initially, and then when those end credits rolled and I raised my eyebrows and said, oh, this is a true story, and I had to do a little bit of digging about the reality of this guy. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I got to rethink entirely my impression of this movie now because a lot of the things that I was going to critique it about were apparently true. <laughs> You can't critique life. Yeah, I can't critique this guy's life. Well, Fred Waitzkin, who is who Joe Mantegna is playing, wrote Searching for Bobby Fischer, The Father of a Prodigy, Observes the World of Chess. So he wrote that book. He's a sports writer. Mm -hmm. In the movie, at least, I'm guessing that's based on reality. I think, by the way, Joe Mantegna is fine in this movie, but also a little miscast. We love him as Fat Tony in The Simpsons. He's done a lot of mammoth things. He's been acting for 42 years. He's a good actor. I wouldn't say he's not, but maybe not quite right for this role. Maybe Macy, William H. Macy, who's got a small part of this, or medium-sized part. He's the tuna fish father. We see a decent amount of <laughs> yeah. the time. Or maybe even Shaloub, who maybe would have been miscasting from a physical sense, but he may have been better casting. We see Shaloub briefly. What a great actor he is. Such a good character actor. So his father knows nothing about chess and reality, and I guess the book, like I say, is called... Father of a Prodigy Observes the World of Chess. So I don't think he means it to be, but it sounds like his book is about me, 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 rather than my seven-year-old, who is by that point probably a little older when he wrote the book. That was in, I think, 88 or something. So then the movie comes out, and the kid has grown by this point, obviously, and Josh was, I think, in his teens or preteens, and he did get to be an international master in reality, but often people who are 12 or 14 get that status as impressive as that sounds, I guess in the world of chess, it's not that impressive. And Josh was 16 when he got it. Mm. So he really wasn't the next Bobby Fischer. He's a very good chess player. He's way better than you or I am. And Max Pomerantz played chess at that point. Barely had acted. This is his first movie. He was only in three ever, including Fluke a couple years later. And I think definitely Maybe was the other one. He's a natural in this film. So if Montaigne is maybe miscast, Montaigne is miscast, Pomerantz is not. He's terrific. Bev said at one point, because she watched this movie, <laughs> oh, no. me, like she's watched a lot of the ones lately. She was very impressed by his naturalism, Pomerantz. Do you not agree? I was going to say, oh no, oh no. You don't think the kid's good, huh? If I had a single criticism of this movie, it would be that kid. Okay. I agree with you about Joe Montaigne. I like him okay in this. I just feel like for the role he was being asked to play, maybe not have been the best casting. It's hard to criticize any child actor, right? Because they're mm -hmm. so young. I think my biggest issue with him is I never got the sense that he ever really liked chess. But he really did play it. This Pomerantz kid? The kid actually played chess. Yeah, Max Pomerantz knew how to play chess. That's probably one of the reasons he got the role. But just from what he's portraying, there are moments in this movie that you can understand that to be the case, right? Because early on, he doesn't want to embarrass his father, so he doesn't want to play, and he's throwing the game intentionally. And that similar motif comes up later when he decides he doesn't want to beat these other kids anymore because he might not be the best. But in between, there's supposed to be moments where he becomes very passionate about the game. I never thought through his performance at all that he ever really enjoyed playing the game. The only way he ever exhibited that to me is by hitting the clock 
and laying the pieces down that he captured super hard, but his face is always just so dour, always. At some point, kid, show me a little bit of joy out of this, because otherwise, why are you doing it at all? I think when he's playing with Vinny in the park, you see that more, and maybe because he wasn't even 10 years old, and he obviously wasn't an actor that everyone wanted, or he didn't want to keep doing it, if he only ever made three movies and only two as a kid. But there is that sequence when they're in Washington Square Park, he and Vinny taking a break, I guess, and they, I think it's Jonathan Poe, and they hear somebody's playing chess, and they both say at the same time, Bobby Fischer, and they race over to see what's going on. That's a moment of joy. So I think maybe the movie's also saying, and maybe it's more subtle than you noticed, or you just didn't pick up on that, or I'm making this up out of whole cloth right now, that he doesn't really enjoy being around Bruce. Well, he does play baseball in Bruce's place one time, and Bruce even joins in a little bit. Not really Bruce's logic to do that kind of thing, not really his style. But he doesn't really enjoy being around somebody who is treating him like he's got to be. And not that Bruce focuses on the Bobby Fischer stuff as much as the movie does. Not really him that does this. But Bruce still is leaning that way, I guess. And Josh just wants to still be a kid. A very important sequence, too, is when Josh talks to Vinny about having an incredible game of baseball. I didn't write down the things he did, but it sounds like he hit multiple home runs, multiple triples. He's a baseball prodigy, too, never mind being a chess prodigy. And again, I saw some kind of joy when he talks to Vinny about his baseball playing. Yes, you get a little bit of that from him when he's talking about baseball. At one point, I thought, was this just something that his father drove him into, right? And we get that sense from the title of the book. There's moments in this movie where I wondered it a little bit because it seems like his dad is more interested in Josh becoming this chess star than Josh is actually interested in the game. Mm-hmm. Did the real-life Josh just not like chess all that much? And he was just happened to be great at it, but was really driven into it. And is that what this movie is trying to convey? But when you read what the real-life Josh has to say about the game, it sounds like he was deeply in love with it. He was passionate about it until about the age of 16, 17, 18, and then fell out of love with the game, and that's why he subsequently gave it up, in his words, anyway. I agree with you, incidentally. The kid's relationship with Vinny, the Lawrence Fishburne character, is more effusive. About joy. About joy. And that was one of my favorite aspects of this movie, was their relationship. I could see what you're saying about him being with Bruce because Bruce is sort of dampening what he wants to bring out of the game, the artistry of it a little bit. Also very important to say this, and the movie's not subtle about this point, his father. At the end, he has the Charlie and Mighty Ducks arc, the kid does. Oh, yeah. Go out there and have fun, kids, like Emilio Estevez is pushing them so hard. Our very first podcast ever was the Mighty Ducks. Emilio's character has to learn that kids need to have fun. And hey, what do you know? They can also be really good at this. And then when Charlie has to make the penalty shot at the end... Gordon's telling him, you've practiced the move. You know what you have to do. And if you yeah. miss it, you miss it. We'll keep playing. We have overtime. I have faith in you regardless, which is not what he learned as a kid. And that's what Mantania has in this arc as well. At one point, he says to the kid, and this is when they repair the relationship a little bit. He says, you don't have to win. It's just a game. Josh's response is, no, it isn't. But I think it's the same scene or soon after when he gives Josh his trophies. He makes sure to put them in Josh's bedroom. Fred isn't the parent living through their kid. I don't think he's quite like that, but he's enough like that that it's a problem. We don't really get to Josh's head to learn just how much it bothers him, but clearly it does. He's pressuring himself, too. His father's doing it. There's that scene in the rain when he deliberately threw the game. They're both getting rained on. And his father's not yelling at him. He's not hitting him. But what he's doing is bad enough. But the most important line in the whole film, and this brings us in the whiplash conversation, which we've had in other podcasts, and now it really applies. When Fred says to, I think, Laura Linney, one of her first roles, he's better at this than I have ever been at anything in my life. And then he also says he has a gift so if Josh wanted it, and we don't really get the sense he does, you're right. Maybe the book says that, but the movie makes it seem like, I like doing this, but I also like playing baseball. I like playing with my friends. I like playing games with my sister. 
And Fred is not being brutal on him like the teacher Whiplash is. But if Josh wants to be as good as he can be, and he's so young, how can he make that decision at this age? But if he does, then he needs to be pushed even harder than Bruce is pushing him, I think. That's the Whiplash conversation all over again. It's come up in movies that have nothing to do with it. And now here's a cousin to Whiplash, I would say, even though Whiplash came many years after this movie did. I think your comparison is very apt. One of the many things that Queen's Gambit does very well, when you see Beth's young character get into the game, you understand why she is driven to really excel at it because it speaks to her in certain ways. In Josh's case, you don't get the sense that he loves it. If he's only doing it because of the reasons you're describing with respect to his father recognizing this talent and driving him and wanting him to excel, that would also be fine, but at least demonstrate for us his ability to just become one with the chessboard, so to speak. Just visualize things in the way that Beth can, and then that kind of explains both his prodigy status and why he would be driven to continue with this, even as a young kid. There are some moments of that very briefly, kind of what you described. The empty board. The empty board being one, exactly. I just think that they didn't really push the chess aspect and Josh's relationship with the game enough. I think one of the things that this movie does excel at is examining complicated relationships, though. And one of those is his father, because he kind of waffles in a number of directions as the movie progresses. And you can almost see Joe Montaigne's character wrestle with the notion of, oh, my kid could be amazing at this. But what does that mean for his life? Is it better to be super balanced and have a range of experiences? You can see him going back and forth, and that's played out in a number of ways, including that conversation with Laura Linney, and including conversations with Joan Allen's character in this, right? Josh's mm -hmm. mom. And I love that Josh's mom is almost the conscience of the family in this, because at various moments, it's, okay, yeah, no problem. My kid will stop playing with Vinny in the park because that's bad for his chess game. And Joan Allen pipes in and says, no, he won't. He'll keep playing because he likes it. Mm -hmm. And he's a kid. And those are his friends. So he's going to keep going and playing. I love her in this movie. Oh, she's great. She's underrated in general. She's been acting a long time. She doesn't get great roles anymore because she dared to get old. But she was terrific all through the 90s anyway. And this is one of her earlier movies. Well, she'd been acting for about 10 years, I think. Something like that. But she wasn't a star like she probably should have been. We've covered her. Bev and I have in Pleasantville. Macy's in that as well. They're both in this movie, both in that movie, where they play a married couple. One of my favorite movies of the 90s, certainly of 98. And I guess the more recent thing that people would know her from would be the Bourne sequels. She's been in three of those. Not the very first one, but she was in Bourne Legacy. She's a CIA director, right, in those? Yes, yeah. Pam Landy. But she's been underrated for so much of her career, and she's underrated in this movie, I would say. And she's underrated as the mother character within the family. Now, Fred's not abusive. He's not a terrible husband or father, and he does learn lessons. And in the end, he is... Gordon Bombay in Mighty Ducks, similar kind of arc for him. And the kid finally plays more for the love of the game. Maybe you're right. Maybe Pomerantz didn't sell that as well as he should have, or maybe that's Stephen Zalian's fault. We haven't even said his name yet, the writer and director of this film. His first be. ever directorial effort. And he wrote this same year, the Oscar winning Schindler's List. What a big year for him. He wrote Schindler's List? He wrote that and he won the Oscar for it. Yeah. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. He's written more than he's directed. He's only directed a handful of movies. He also wrote Moneyball, which we covered way earlier this year. One of the best movies we've covered in 2020. But Joan Allen, I think, is good in this film. And I said not underrated in the family. Maybe not underrated because, obviously, she is more the boss than Fred is. Yeah. She's more present. She's raising the two kids. Fred has a job that takes him away. We don't see him traveling. But if he's writing about the Yankees, he must have to travel with them. I guess it's possible he just stays in New York and only reports on the 81 games they play there and then maybe the playoffs if they ever made it. 
which they weren't making it back then. <laughs> Not in the early 90s, no. So maybe he doesn't travel for his work, but I'm guessing he probably does. So she is really, truly the boss of this family. And whenever Joan Allen has a line or any kind of scene, she seems to hit it out of the park every time. I don't think Mantegna doesn't do that. I just don't know if he's the right actor for it. He's better cast in something like, which Bab and I covered this year as well, The Godfather Part 3, where he's Joey Zaza. Yeah, that makes more sense. Joan Allen, she's not really utilized to the full extent that she could be in this movie. But whenever she comes up, she's the leading presence in the scene. She's excellent when she has something to do, yeah. Yeah, and she's always the more perceptive of the two parents. She's always the one that has the authority to lay down the common sense final word. Ben Kingsley, as much as his Irish accent was wonky to say the least and a little bit goofy Mm -hmm. at times... He's always good, and he's good in this role. And one thing I did appreciate about what they did in this movie, and again, it's probably true to life, but nonetheless, they didn't have to bring it out in the screenplay, is that he took the moment to demonstrate to Josh's father what pursuing a life of chess could look like for Josh. Understanding how good this kid was at such a young age and being a lifelong chess teacher and aficionado himself, still Ben Kingsley's character took him to this tournament that essentially amounted to the best of the best in America. And this guy here, who came up in an affluent background, plays 200 tournaments a year. And what do you net per year? Is it $2,000? Yeah, that's right. This is kind of what it looks like, unless your kid happens to be the grandmaster of the world. This is what you could be consigning him to if you sign him up for a life of pursuit of just chess. This guy might have a deep love and affinity for the game, but at least he has a conscience about his students. Joe Montaigne's character then says, I see what you're doing here. You're trying to get me to appreciate exactly what I just described. At least they're still doing it, even if not too subtly. So I kind of like that moment. And I like that they gave Ben Kingsley character a little bit of depth of character and not just the hardline chess teacher. But can we acknowledge for a moment just how good the cast of this movie is? Oh, yeah. You said Laura Linney. This is a very early role for her. But you've got Tony Shalhoub... I, Shaloub. Shaloub, yeah. Who I love in a very small role, but the guy has just got such great facial expressions and he's mm-hmm. such a great actor. Joan Allen and Joe Montaigne, even if he's not greatly cast in this, is still okay. Lawrence Fishburne, William H. Macy, and character actors whose names I'm never going to be able to come up with, but pop up for like 30 seconds. I've got three for you. One of whom you definitely recognize because we covered him not that long ago, Dan Hedaya, who was in Rookie of the Year. And in this, it's a funny scene where he's giving all the rules to the parents, not the kids. He's also in He Got Game. So we've seen him in three sports movies. Maybe it's more, but three for sure. In about a year, we've watched all these sports movies. Maybe less. Anyway, so Dan Hedaya is one. Austin Pendleton, who ends up being a good guy in the Muppet movie, but he is Doc Hopper's assistant in that and his henchman, if you will. He's one of the chess players who can't figure out things. And he's going crazy because he's good at chess. But I bet Josh is already better than he is. But he's more obsessed with it than Josh ever is. He's one of those people that wants it, but he'll never have it. He will never be that great drummer in Whiplash. He will never be that great chess player. But he probably wants it more. And even Josh Mustel, who was in Rounders, we covered that a couple years ago, is a small part, but one of the chess players as well. He's the tubbier guy. Zero yes. Mostel's son. Zero Mostel from the producers. So there's three character actors on top of what you just mentioned. And then Fishburne and Kingsley are probably the two biggest names going into this, probably even more so than Mantania was. Kingsley was also in Schindler's List this year. I mentioned that already. He was in that too. And Dave, which is a very underrated comedy. I love Dave. Big year for Ben. Fishburne, we've covered on the Top Runner Project, Bev and I, Apocalypse Now, Boys in the Hood, The Matrix, Contagion. What a variance that is. The same year he did What's Love Got to Do With It, where he's Ike Turner. Lawrence Fishburne probably would make somebody's top 50 of all-time actors, and nor would Kingsley, I don't think. But man. 
Their resumes are remarkable. And one more character actor I see in my notes here, David Paymer, who's got a pretty diverse resume as well. He's one of the other fathers. He probably has the most screen time of the other fathers beyond Fred. Yes, I know exactly who you're talking about. Very distinct face. The guy face. from Mr. Saturday Night, yes. City Slickers. And if we ever cover Red Belt, an MMA movie, he's in that. Paymer's the father of the kid that Josh befriends at his first tournament, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that fun moment at the very end. You're a much better player than I was at your age. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he's probably a year older than that kid. The cast is fantastic, yeah. Many of them were probably early enough in their career that they could get them to do these kind of small parts. But it really lends some great performances to relatively small scenes within this movie. I love the William H. Macy scene locked up in the locker room, but all of the Dan Hedaya stuff that leads up to it. The scene opens, of course, with a little bit of an overhead shot of the gym, looking up at the wall and the ceiling, and you can hear Dan Hedaya giving some voiceover saying, can we all behave like adults? Oh, come on, man. These are seven-year-old kids. You're not going to get them to... I don't care if it's a chess tournament. They're not going to behave like adults. But then the camera pans down. It's all the parents in a corner. You can watch. We have to stand behind them. No hand signals. No ear tugging. No eye rolling. No eye contact. It's like hockey parents, right? It's like no fighting in the stands. Might be worse than hockey parents. The fact that they're standing right behind them. I guess they have to to see what's going on. But what is that about? They shouldn't be a foot behind the kids. That's nuts. And then they do mess it up because they get fighting, literally. And they get locked up. And that's another laugh right there. Two of the parents get into a literal fight, so he tricks them into coming down into the locker room, or I guess it must be some kind of storage area, because there's a gated door. Yeah, I think door. it's a storage area for the balls and bats and but there's still nets and things. players' lockers in there too, which was weird. But anyway, he locks them in, and you've got the kids applauding the removal of the parents, because in this sequence, they're the more mature. <laughs> there's a few moments of levity and then laughter, but mm -hmm. that was unquestionably the best in my mind. Although William H. Macy does a good job subsequently as the pensive, anxious parent befriending Joe Montana, at least in that moment, befriending Joe Montana. Do you want a tuna fish sandwich? I'm going to get a tuna fish sandwich. You want a tuna fish sandwich? No, you don't. I'm going to get you a tuna fish sandwich. How about that? Okay, all right, buddy. I'll be right back. And it sounds like you and Bev are probably a little bit more into Josh's performance and what was going on broadly. But those small moments, those small performances really elevated and saved the movie for me. I think most character studies that would be true about. If they're going to work, it's going to be the little things as much as the big things. You know, one thing that doesn't work in this movie at all, though? Well, it works, I guess, but it bothered me. And I didn't notice this when I saw the movie the first couple of times. James Horner's music. Or should I say James Horner's Field of Dreams music? It is almost the exact same score as what's in Field of Dreams, other than the true theme that you think of. But even that seems to be in this movie just slightly tweaked. He phoned it in, man. I love that music, but it's a different movie. <laughs> they just backed a wheelbarrow full of money up to his house, and he's like, uh, yeah, take the soundtrack. Just reuse that. It'll be fine. <laughs> Queen's Gambit, they make great use of music. And I had no sense whatsoever of the score in this movie, and I think that's a bit of a damning indictment of how blasé it was. You must have noticed the look of the film. The cinematography was nominated for the Oscar, but it lost out to, and I'll say it again, Schindler's List. Janusz Kaminski's first movie was Spielberg, not his first movie, period, but his first was Spielberg that won the Oscar for the complete opposite of what this movie is, which is glossy. And of course, this is in color, and that wasn't. But Conrad Hall, who won three Oscars in his career, including for American Beauty and I forget the other ones, Butch Cassidy, I believe is one of them, was nominated for this movie. He was also nominated for a civil action, which Zalian did next. Another really good cast. I love the role for Gandolfini. So Pendolfini is a real person in this. And then Gandolfini as a small but great role in A Civil Action, which is Zalian's follow-up about five years later. Bev and I watched that during the early part of the pandemic, and she didn't love it as much as I do, but I think it's better than a very similar movie, Aaron Brockovich. I mentioned the Oscar nomination, so I'll get through the rest of the numbers here. Rotten Tomatoes critics, get this. 
100% of them liked the film, an average of 8 out of 10, and 86% of audiences. Those are some of the best numbers that we've ever had for this podcast. It was 124th at the box office that year. Jurassic Park was number one. And we've covered a lot of movies from 93 now. Cool Runnings, we did that a couple years ago, was 15th. Rookie of the Year, we did earlier this year, not that long ago, was 22nd. Sandlot, The Sandlot, we covered that at the start of the year, was 50th. And we also covered Ruby this year from 1993. So when we get to 2023, we don't have that many movies to do <laughs> from 93. We've covered so many already. That was a big sports movie year. Searching for Bobby Fischer is arguably sports. Yeah. And it was also on the top 100 cheers list. So the most inspiring for the AFI. It was 96th and appropriately for Christmas Eve as we released this podcast. It's a Wonderful Life was number one on the cheers list. And I didn't say this either. It was released by Paramount on August 11th of 1993. And it didn't succeed at all. This movie was basically a bomb i very rarely if ever look up the kind of numbers that you just talked about before we record this in no small part because i know you're going to speak them and i like to be a little bit surprised about it but because i was so intrigued about the true story of it i did look it up and i was shocked by how badly this movie did in the theaters because even if i have issues with aspects of it i think some of the performances big and small are great and I think on the whole it's a good movie you were entertained it sounds like too and that's the bottom line of the movie like this you better be entertained it was not as entertaining as I would have liked it to be, but it was an interesting character study in many ways. And it was certainly not a bomb. I don't understand how this performed as badly as it did in that year. And one thing I should have asked you probably 66 episodes ago or so, and I never have, <laughs> is when you talk about these Rotten Tomato numbers, does liking a movie as the percentages indicate, is that like somebody that's given it 51% or better? What's the cutoff between liking and not liking? I don't know specifically, but I think it comes down to if they just said, like Siskel and Ebert used to do, thumbs up, thumbs down. Oh, I that's see. why I usually give the average, because if it is 7.5 or something like that, that's a pretty strongly reviewed film. But sometimes I'll tell you that 88% of critics like the film or 75 or something, but then the actual average of 10 is 6, which means that those that liked it, some of them must have loved it, and the rest of them were more like, yeah, it's okay. Okay. So I don't know. This sounds like this was very well reviewed. But some of the movies that we've covered and that Bev and I have covered, I'll report those numbers. And it's really more a matter of it barely got a passing grade. It squeaked by, even though it sounds like, oh, my God, almost everybody liked it. Well, they did, but maybe barely. But this movie was not that. It was raved about. And Zalian, like I said, wrote two big movies in one year. This wasn't big, I guess. But it could have been with this cast. And had it come out after Schindler's List, you maybe could say, hey, the guy that wrote that movie, that's a box office success and it's going to win a bunch of awards and everybody thinks it's one of the greatest movies of all time. But this movie beat Schindler's List to the punch. So this was out the same time Jurassic Park was still dominating the box office too, which is Spielberg's other big hit that year. So many tie-ins in 1993 with the cast and the crew in this movie and with other ones. Yeah, I wonder if this is just a case of a movie that is low-key in its nature and it just was released at a terrible time because you've got Jurassic Park. The Fugitive was out that summer as well. Talk about putting a movie out just to die when you're trying to put it up against these enormously successful movies. And August is the time you bury movies a lot of time, like you do January. Maybe that's just the case, because it really did deserve to do a lot better than the numbers would indicate, just in terms of box office totals. It's a good movie, ultimately. Mm -hmm. We've talked on and off air quite a bit about the AFI list and some of the movies that are included or surprised that they're not. I'm a little surprised that this was included on the Cheers list because I wasn't jumping out of my seat for joy necessarily when Josh <laughs> won a tournament. I could tell you why it was on there, I think. This is the ultimate example of a movie where the main point of the movie, Jess, is not the point of the movie. Joan Allen basically tells us that without actually literally saying that. 
The reason why it's inspiring, I think, to people is because, yeah, he was good at chess and he beat that kid. But the more important point at the end when he plays Jonathan is, I can see that I'm going to beat you because you just made a move. It was a mistake. As soon oh. as Jonathan makes that move, they cut back to show Kingsley, oh, Josh has got him. See it, Josh. Don't make the move till you see it. Then we flash back to the scene at Bruce's place months before. And then Josh sees it too. But the key point is when Josh says, I'll offer you a draw. We can share the trophy. That's the inspiration. And then the very last shot, of course, too, where he's walking off and just being a kid with his new friend, who's also a chess player, not nearly as good as Josh, but they're sharing baseball probably. It's not going to be just about this. It is the anti-whiplash argument. So I think that's what the inspiration is about. Joan Allen's character wins, and Joe Mantegna's character learns the lesson. But the earlier part of Joe Mantegna and what Bruce was trying to be, wasn't trying to be, but what he was through a lot of the movie, and even Vinny to some degree, they lose. But they love the kid enough and they want to see him do well. That's why it's inspirational, I think. When they're backstage watching on the little monitor, it's fun to watch Vinny and Bruce debating how to play the game. They don't <laughs> yeah. fight exactly, but they have a blatant disagreement about how to play the queen. That's what Josh is always doing. He plays aggressively because Vinny taught him that. And also Josh knows about the game so well, he doesn't need to be told by Vinny how to do that. But he brings the queen out early. And I guess the reason why you don't is because you don't have as much room to move with it and you can get trapped too easily. That's the logic of why Bruce would tell him, don't move your queen too early because it isn't useful enough at this point and you might lose it like he does so early on in that championship game. Right. And then at the very end, it comes down to just kings and queens. They're both racing to get to the other side of the board so they can get one of their pawns to be a queen. But the mistake that Jonathan made, and I think I recognized this watching at this time, was one square. If he'd gone one spot different with his king earlier, but because he's there, Josh can see, as Bruce does, whatever it is, 5, 10, 12 moves in advance, that when they both race with their pawns to get the queen back, Josh is not in position to lose his king, but Jonathan is. And that's why it's, I got my queen back too. Yeah, but check. The king has to move out of the way because it's in check. But that means Jonathan's queen is gone. And now it's down to Josh's queen versus Jonathan's king only. The game's over. So he had left his king on the diagonal of the board that was directly between both of the kids' respective queens, and that put that king at risk. I can't disagree with your inspirational moment. And if that's the context for that list, then I can't argue it. When you were reading it, I was thinking, okay, cheers is in like rousing moments, which isn't mm -hmm. what this struck me as. You know what else is on that list? I've mentioned it about five times in this episode already. Schindler's List is on the cheers list. What? The key thing there is most inspirational movies of all time. The 100 most inspirational. Okay. So that's why it's on there. There's a lot of movies on there that are very debatable. And there's plenty of sports movies, of course, too. Seabiscuit, for example, is a classic example of an inspirational movie. Or Rocky is, and they're both on there. But so is Schindler's List. But it's for different reasons. In reading about this movie, did you read that this kid that Jonathan Poe was based off of is also a real-life personality? And they played this game. But his name is Jeff Swarzak or Swarzen or something. He's from Ontario. He's from Kingston. Oh. He was offered a draw by Josh in real life. He declined the draw, but they ended up ultimately drawing the game. There was no way for any one of them to win. But the movie needs a big finish, so that's why they went with a big finish. And they're playing fast. He's playing Jonathan like he plays Vinny in the park. Bang, 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 bang with the moves. That is the big difference between what this movie portrays and the kind of chess that we see Bobby Fischer play. The games, I think, universally now are timed to some degree, but I think at the larger tournaments, like we see, again, in Queen's Gambit, I think you're given 48 minutes or 60 minutes to start on your timer, and in this movie, it's a matter of a few minutes. I do agree it's a game that evolves with society, and it evolves as people 
adapt to each other and you develop new strategies and stuff. This is a game with finite permutations and that finite number might be enormous, but it is still finite. And we're now living in an era where chess has been a computerized game for a long time. Is it at this point, just a solved entity and the person who is the best in the world at it is the one that has memorized the most moves and counter moves at various stages throughout the game. Is that what this that game could be. comes down to? I think it comes down to what Jonathan does in this game. He's really good. He's probably better than Josh. Josh even says, I can't beat him. But let's just say, you know, you're supposed to do this, 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 and you add another 20s, this is. But even though you're supposed to do this move, you didn't do the right this move. Because you forgot, because you got flesh and blood on your body like everybody else, you messed up. So even the smartest person in the world that knows he or she has to make, I don't know how many chess moves there are in a game, if it's 100, let's say, they're supposed to do them in this order and they can win and probably will, especially as we see in the Queen's Gambit. When you play first, that's such a key. It's like having home field advantage times 20. But even if you're really good, you're still human and you can still not make the right move you should have made. Why? Because you didn't get enough sleep. You didn't have enough to eat. You're just having a bad day or you just lost focus for a second. And you do what Jonathan did. Jonathan's better than Josh and he messed up. So that's the answer to that question is that maybe you can know everything, but you screw up anyway because you're not a computer. And that's where you need a parent nearby to bring you a tuna fish sandwich. Dad, my blood sugar's low. Where's my tuna <laughs> fish? And William H. Macy comes running up with a, with a tuna fish. You're right. And of course, the human element is what it all comes down to. It makes me wonder about the future of the game. And Bobby Fischer was very critical of chess towards the end of his life. He's an interesting character in and of himself. But towards the end of his life, apparently, this is what he thought of the game, is that the people that are best at it are simply the ones that are most capable of memorizing a series of opening gambits and responding gambits. Of course, we're all fallible. That's one of the elements of this movie that they kind of touch on but don't really explore too deeply. Yeah, we're human beings, and maybe your ability to succeed in this game. There's like a ceiling to it, both because, you know, maybe you have flaws as a human or maybe just because chess in the 90s just isn't going to offer a lot of lucrative opportunities. And this is brought forward by Laura Linney, her teacher character, who seems to be very aggressively criticizing Josh's parents for the amount of travel time that Josh is taking in his chess playing. But it strikes me that chess, like many other things, offers somebody as long as you do balance it somewhat and to his credit josh is he's doing other things as we talked about earlier but it offers you so many opportunities to exercise aspects of your brain that are really the kinds of aspects of your brain you want young people to be exercising critical thinking and applying logic and thinking strategically and being able to play with forethought and foresee stuff these things are really what we should be encouraging people to think about not necessarily memorizing stuff out of a textbook and learn how to lose too that's another thing in this that you did yes sportsmanship just and morality and integrity they're all going to lose at some point unless you're an undefeated kid you're going to lose and you better learn how to do that one of the key moments in the film too because fred is his baseball coach on top of being his dad and his right. chess mentor not mentor i guess but his chess driver at least the, the one who writes the book about him but he's his baseball coach and they win a game josh is a really good player as we've already said but you notice and this is another key reason why this movie i think is supposed to be inspirational that he feels bad, that the Eagles feel bad. Right. They won. He should be happy. They're going to go out for pizza. They're going to have fun. He and his friends. He's a good player, but he feels bad that the other team lost. And that isn't called back literally at the end with Jonathan, but he probably feels bad that Jonathan lost too, because he's a good kid. To contrast that, of course, whenever we would win softball games and would go out for beers afterwards to celebrate, 
you would be staying behind at the diamond to sit in the rain and cry silent tears because you felt so bad for the opposing team that we just trounced. And we would swing by later and pick you up and drive you home afterwards. But we'd leave you there for a good couple hours just to weep silently on your own, of course. To work it out. <laughs> yeah, to work out those emotions. It's fair. You feel deeply. We understand that. There's a lot of aspects of chess that offer opportunities to kids. And I thought it was interesting how deeply that Laura Lenny character attacked it. And I also thought it was super interesting that she compared chess to Pinochle. Who the heck in 1993 even plays Pinochle? At least compare it to... I don't know, go fish or checkers. Sure. Checkers. Yeah. Similar style of game, basically, at least. Isn't that the line where Mantani keeps saying pinochle, pinochle, pinochle. She called it pinochle. And that's the scene where he says, my kid is better at this than I've ever been at anything. And if he is broadcasting, not broadcasting, but writing about Yankees games, he must be a pretty good writer to get that gig. And he's saying that my kid, who's not even 10 years old, is already great at something. And I'll bring up the whiplash thing one more time because this movie is an argument against pushing somebody too hard because you might ruin his life. And if the kid doesn't want it, then you shouldn't. But if the kid did want it badly enough, then you whiplash him, I think is what it comes down to. And Fred probably would have done that, but then he probably also would have lost his wife. That's true. Because she didn't want that. Even if Josh said, Mom, I want this so badly. If I have to grow up to be like Bobby Fischer as a human being, which may not be a good thing, I want it that badly. That's what happens in whiplash. That's what Andrew wants. But his mom still wouldn't have been okay with that, I don't think. And she probably would have been blaming it on Fred, and that marriage would have ended. It doesn't in the movie, and I don't think it did in reality. It is a movie about learning lessons. <laughs> More for the parents than the kids. That might be the best capsule for the whole thing, is that it is a movie about learning lessons, and it's a movie about humanity more so than it is about chess, because we've talked about all of these moments throughout the movie that really emphasize the importance of Josh's dad's emotional and mental journey towards what he wants to drive his kid to do and also Josh's interests. But the movie makes a point, and I think it's final title card at the end of the movie, of saying that Josh plays chess, but he also enjoys golf, fishing in the summer. It lists five or six yes. things that are his interests. And it's as if it's just wanting one last time to reemphasize that you can be very good at a thing and you can excel at it, but don't make it your entire identity. That just seems to be what the movie is trying to drive home ultimately. It's a message I agree with ultimately, I think too. And Fisher did come to this conclusion. I think it says this in the last card, too, in September 92, so about a year before the movie came out. And he beat Spassky again and then disappeared again. And the movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it, because there's an actual movie about him and there's documentaries, or one documentary anyway, but the movie I saw, Pawn Sacrifice, where Tobey Maguire played him. I think it might be Maguire's last, quote-unquote, big movie. And it was six years ago or something like that. I haven't seen that movie. Nobody did. Yeah, well, Tobey Maguire at that point, I think, was a bit of a toxic entity. That didn't help, yes. Well, we don't really know chess that well, but what did you think of the depiction of the sport? I think it's pretty solid. You see it being better in Queen's Gambit. I agree. So maybe that spoiled it a little bit because you saw that before you saw the movie. Do you think it's at least good or solid or fine or is it bad? I think it's fine. I think you can look at it from a couple of different perspectives. And it's kind of what I talked about early on when the movie kind of analyzes Lawrence Fishburne's play of the game versus Ben Kingsley's play of the game and how their attitudes really inform the way they play and is either one correct? And I think the movie's saying no, because it's a game that you can adapt to however your relationship to it happens to be. This is really a movie more about relationships and stuff like that than it is the actual chess. Because the actual chess, as much as we're told that Josh is this great young chess prodigy, we only ever see him playing other seven-year-olds, seven, eight, nine-year-olds anyway, elementary school age kids. And we only ever see it from a distance. 
we never see the detail in the game that we see in Queen's Gambit, save and except for that last moment of his game against Jonathan. Mm. So from that perspective, I never got the sense of, wow, look at this kid play. He's incredible because I never really understood how he was playing. We only ever see the flurry of arms whipping across the board, but you never see what the pieces are doing. And part of that might just be as much as the kid might know how to play, it might be hard to train him to play a certain sequence of moves very quickly for the purposes of getting the shot. If they put a sequence of moves on the screen that they tried to get accurately, but they got one wrong, you know there'd be a pedant picking at them in the way that I'm picking at them right now. So <laughs> maybe that was quasi-intentional. It wouldn't have suited the production to try to achieve that kind of detail. Right. And they also undoubtedly, as I said earlier, in that fast play would have knocked pieces over sometimes, especially <laughs> yeah. if comes a kid who's only done this a few times in his life, only for a matter of months. So the kid as an actor or the real person undoubtedly knocked pieces over. And I'm not sure what the rules are with that, if you did that accidentally or deliberately in chess. But you'd, if not be disqualified, you'd have to be punished in some kind of way, even if you didn't mean to do it. It's like golf with the honor system. Same kind of idea, I think, anyway. Well, as far as the score for the game, it's not sexy at all. It shouldn't be. It's a kid's movie. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? No romantic subplots. I was scoring nonstop. <laughs> this movie offers no scoring chances, so I think you would agree. It's not a movie you can score at. It is as innocent a move as you're ever going to find at the theater. Nicely done, sir. Not even a softcore porn. And I would give it 7.5 out of 10. I think it's a pretty solid movie. 7 or 7.5. Because I do like it. I own it. There aren't that many chess movies out there either. Or chess TV shows. We've mentioned probably all of them. Chess like golf is not an easy thing to make an exciting movie out of. So I respect what this movie is trying to portray. And I really respect the success it had at portraying the relationships and some of those small performances. I'd come in more at seven on the scale, maybe. It's the first time I saw it, and I was kind of impressed with it, given that I knew it came out in 1993. Before we wrap up, I had one final question for you about this movie. To use some poker terminology, it tilted me a little bit. To see Joe Montaigne's chess set when he pulled it out because he wanted to play with Josh, the red pieces on that chess set, what the hell, man? Yeah. Chess is white and black. Don't get cutesy poo with white and red or white and blue. So when I saw him pull that out, I was just written my teeth. <laughs> it bothered me to no end for some reason. Why did they make the decision that this guy's chess set had to have red pieces in it? Was it just to demonstrate how dollar store low grade it was? Also, maybe he's a racist. He doesn't like black pieces. Oh, oh wow. no, not fair to say that. He's not a racist. Let's sign off on that note. Yes. Well, this does represent the last movie of 2020 for us here on Christmas Eve. We've covered 26 movies this year. Makes sense. Every other week, 52 weeks in a year. The best movies we saw were in the spring and summer, Moneyball, I, Tanya, Rocky 2. And we often stretch the definition of what constitutes a sports movie. Point Break, Fast and the Furious, Free Solo, and now this. Although, Alex Honnold and Free Solo, what an athlete. But thanks for finding us on this channel. Or if you found us when we were still in the Top 100 Project, and of course nothing's on there anymore. We stripped them off of there, and every episode, all 67, are on this channel. And you can find us wherever you find podcasts. And we pledge to keep bringing the wise-assery and going on tangents in 2021. But everybody be safe, wear your mask, don't visit people, be smart about that, and maybe we can end this stupid crap, I almost said another word, without too many more weeks and months. And he and I are not together, of course. Although Chris got this limiter thing on his computer, so maybe it'll be perfect sound. And earlier this week, Bev and I released an episode, The Hateful Eight, which sounds like crap because we've had audio problems here. So his audio is better than ours is now, and we've got uh. it's supposed to be the recording studio. But hopefully we'll be better soon, too. We're working at that. If you listen to both podcasts, I'll apologize now like I apologize on Monday. All right, in two weeks, it will indeed be 2021, and we're due for another baseball film. So we're going to get all taxi driver on you as we talk about the De Niro Snipes stalker flick, The Fan.
and that'll be 25 years old in 2021. Yeah, I look forward to that one. That is an odd movie for a kid to watch, even though it's about baseball. So I'm looking forward to seeing that as a 40-year-old man. It's vicious, as I recall. I only saw it once, and it was a long time ago. But Tony Scott, our third Tony Scott movie that will represent, because we did The Last Boy Scout this year, and of course he did Days of Thunder, which we covered a while ago. Do we have one quad appearance? Not Costner. Yes, I forget who it is, but it's somebody. It might be Costner. Some supporting actors. Not many stars. Dan Hedaya has been in at least three, and I bet it might be more. But he's not a star, so. All right, well, I guess we'll wrap up on that note. So take her easy, Josh. I saw that you did. You walk down the street with your friend, arm in arm. Take her easy. Play some baseball. Play chess when you feel like it, and only then. Wow, what a wholesome sign-off. <laughs> wholesome messaging. See you next year, folks. Bye-bye.